But what I found was this group of, that calls themselves the Friends of Forest, who were sort of staked out in the Confederate section of that cemetery, a bunch of signs around saying, no trespassing, Confederate memorial circle closed. And of course, that's catnip for a reporter. So I wander over and, and, and start talking to them. housing, whether it's access to health care, um, whether it's, you know, the treatment from police, uh, you know, all of these different ways that, that, that in, inequities in this country break down um, by race. You describe this as, as this is basically a Cold War version of the Civil War, and, and frankly, that felt so accurate. I think it's really convenient for, for folks in the North, and this was certainly the received wisdom that I grew up with. I'm Sarah Fenske. This is St. Louis on the Air. I'm Laura Hamden, producer for St. Louis on the Air. Before today's episode, I want to take a moment to say thank you for listening. Our team works hard to provide nuance on the news that shapes your life and your community. We wouldn't be able to do this without your support. The money you give to St. Louis Public Radio helps fund our podcast. Please go to stlpr.org slash donate and give an amount that works for you. Your contribution along with that of your neighbors is what fuels St. Louis on the air. We're really grateful. Thank you for your support. Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. For Northerners, the name Nathan Bedford Forrest might not mean much. He was a Confederate general and the first Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. In the movie Forrest Gump, the title character explains he was given his name after a distant relative. The name Forrest, he says, was meant as a reminder that, quote, sometimes we all do things that just don't make no sense. But in some corners of the South, Nathan Bedford Forrest's history is far from obscure, and Forrest Gump's shrug is not the lesson his fervent fans take from it. As journalist Connor Town O'Neill explains in his new book, Forrest is a cult hero to many who mourn the loss of the Confederacy. And in the modern-day South, monuments to this former general aren't just being defended, they continue to be erected. That book is called Down Along with That Devil's Bones, a reckoning with monuments, memory, and the legacy of white supremacy. And joining us today to talk about it is author Connor Town O'Neill. So, Connor, thanks for joining us today. Hey, good to be with you. I gave such a brief overview of Nathan Bedford Forrest's life. What makes this guy such an icon to a certain sort of Southerner? Yeah, a certain sort of Southerner is right. Um, I think he is seen as the sort of great white hope uh, for Confederates who ready to, to fight the war again. He enlisted in the war as a private uh, and became the most promoted soldier, north or south. Uh, the historian and novelist Shelby Foote called him one, one of the two geniuses to emerge from the war, the mm -hmm. other being Abraham Lincoln. Um, but because he he wasn't given such a prominent role in the Confederacy, and he was fighting in the sort of overlooked Western theater of the war. There's a lot of saber rattling among neo-Confederates. You know, if only Forrest had been given a more prominent role, uh, then the South might have won. So increasingly in the years since the war, uh, as, as people are vowing that the South will rise again, Forrest becomes a real lodestar for them as the kind of, uh, uh, you know, what could have been. Uh, so, so yeah, he, he's a sort of... Uh, um, uh, icon for the, the imagined Confederacy. Do you think someone could be a fan of this guy without being a racist? No. 
Uh, no, it, that's it should, a very it simple answer right there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, it, it, it requires a, a, an enormous amount of magical thinking even to just, you know, uh, say the, the sort of plausibly deniable things about why he's admired um, without getting into, as, as you, you said in your intro, all of the reasons that uh, his detractors cite for um, uh, abhorring him. Mm-hmm. Now, it's interesting to me. I was not familiar with the fact there are monuments to this guy, apparently, all over the South. And we might think of these monuments as being a part of history. But the one you begin your book with was only installed in 2015. Set the stage for us. How is it that a town would erect a statue to this Confederate general 150 years after the end of the war? That's right. Yeah, you know, it, it it is tempting to think about monuments only in terms of the the figure from history that they um, that they seek to honor. Uh, but of course, you know, these monuments don't just show up out of nowhere. It requires money. It requires political capital uh, to to be able to put put up a, a monument in the first place. So we can look at the they they say as much about the present as they do the past. And this monument in Selma um, has a particularly revealing story about the present. I think, and it's the one that set me on this journey. Um, so this is back in, in 2015 when I stumbled across this story, the 50th anniversary of Bloody Sunday, the attack by Alabama police officers on civil rights demonstrators uh, at Selma's Edmund Pettus Bridge, sort of the, the the climax of the civil rights movement during the push for voting rights. Um, 50 years later, Barack Obama, President Obama is in town to, to mark the occasion and to give a speech, and, and I was there to report on it, along with 40,000 other people. So <laughs> Selma, which is a pretty small city, is you know suddenly overrun with people, and and I'm desperate to find a, a place to park. Uh, and so I think, oh, there's a cemetery by, you know, close to downtown. I'll pull in there. I'll stash my car somewhere out of the way and I'll walk down to the bridge. But what I found was this group uh, that calls themselves the Friends of Forest who were sort of staked out in the Confederate section of that cemetery. A bunch of signs around saying no trespassing, Confederate memorial circle closed. And of course, that's catnip for a reporter. So I wander over and, and, and start talking to them and learn that They'd spent really the better part of the last two decades fighting about this statue of forest that they had put up. Uh, it had originally gone up in 2000, the same week as the city uh, had inaugurated its first black mayor. Um, so uh, uh, incredibly controversial thing to do. The statue was eventually stolen, prompting more protests and a federal lawsuit even uh, that the Fener- that the Friends of Forest uh, eventually won. And, and by the time that I met them in 2015, they were getting ready to replace the statue. So they were putting up a second statue of Nathan Bedford Forest. So that's what sent me on this journey. And the real dissonance of that encounter um, really stuck with me and and led me to do more reporting on these monuments. Yeah. And so you didn't just stick with Selma. You also looked at three other places. Uh, How did you choose the three places in Tennessee that you ended up using to to flesh out this story of uh, Nathan Bedford Forrest and the monuments to his life? Yeah, well, I was looking for stories that said, uh, again, that said as much about the present as they did about the past. I I really wanted the book to be a blend of of history and present day reporting. So I was looking for stories that had active campaigns in recent years to try and get these statues down. Uh, So uh, in the aftermath of the the Charleston Nine murders that, that really prompted this new referendum and protest movement against Confederate symbols and Confederate monuments. Uh, I, I followed ones that were aimed at forests specifically, uh, including a, a movement on the campus of Middle Tennessee State University uh, in the, the year after the Confederate Nine, or I'm sorry, the Charleston Nine murders, uh, trying to get 
the school to rename a building on campus that was named after Forrest. And that was a really interesting story. One, because it revealed the really polarized nature of political debate in 2015 and 2016, this really sort of tit for tat, um, you know, pro and, and anti forest uh, groups just, you know, kind of yelling at each other for a full year. Um, and then uh, there's a just a little bit north north of Murfreesboro, there is this really cartoonishly ugly statue of Forrest on the uh, the shoulder of Interstate 65 in Nashville, and that was sculpted by uh, uh, one of the co-founders of the League of the South. That's a group that was really prominent in Charlottesville. So, telling the story of that statue um, was a, a way to sort of beat the drum in the lead up to um, the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville in 2017. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, in the aftermath of Charlottesville, there was a big push in Memphis to remove this 30-foot bronze equestrian statue of Forrest that culminated in this dramatic uh, late-night removal. Uh, it required a lot of uh, searching for loopholes and a kind of end run around some state laws by the city of Memphis to take that statue down. So in each of the places that I'm looking at, uh, they're tied to history and they're tied to the Civil War, but but they're also, uh, there's movement on the ground in the present to report on too. And it's connecting, they were ways of connecting that deeper past and, and showing how it was still shaping our present. And we really get to know some of these people who are fighting to have these names changed or have these statues removed. And one of your most vivid characters is in uh, Murfreesboro. That's the, the state school in Tennessee that has, I guess, the ROTC building named after Forrest. There's a student named Joshua Crutchfield who we get to know in your reporting. He finally gets the university to take some action. They are, they are spurred. Um, basically, he, he threatens to have all the black students pull out of, of, of this school. I mean, this seems like a pretty dramatic step here. And it was it was interesting how this worked. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it, Joshua is a, an incredibly insightful historian and a really shrewd organizer, too. Uh, and and he, he really helped me understand what was at stake in, in debates over these names and, and showed and, and it, through the, the way that they organized that protest that these kind of should they stay up, should they stay down? Uh, Debates are really in bad faith and give a sort of false equivalency to um, to people arguing for their, you know, that they should stay up, uh, as, as he put it to me quite succinctly. Uh, we don't think racism should be debated at this point. <laughs> uh, so they led a really canny protest effort where they they took. They took part in the task force that the university set up, um, but also tried to subvert it and protest it and, and point up the, the, the fact that this was a really in bad faith. And, um, and and like you say, you know, by the end, really sort of lost patience uh, and was worn out by, you know, a year of having to point out the um, the the dangerous and, and uh, you know, dehumanizing nature of honoring someone like Forrest on a. Uh, uh, the campus of a school claiming to be inclusive and diverse. And so, like you say, eventually he pens this open letter in the, the local newspaper saying, you know what, we're, we're tired of asking. We're asking you to treat us respectfully. Um, we don't have to beg to be included. We should all transfer to uh, HBCUs. And, you know, he, he makes such a good argument here. It gets such a great response. But what was so um, just disheartening about this is the university listening to him was not the end of the story. This was certainly news to me here in Missouri. Tennessee has a state commission that they can't rename this building without its blessing. Tell us how this came to be. 
That's right. There's a law in, in Tennessee, and actually there's a similar one in, in Alabama, these sort of, um, you know, retrograde or reactionary laws that have been passed in recent years that um, are meant to protect monuments like the the Confederate monuments that have been under fire in recent years. So there's a, a law in Tennessee called the Tennessee Heritage Protection Act that re- first required a majority of the state's historical commission to approve any changes to historically important sites or names, um, and then uh, was uh, upgraded uh, after in, in 2015, as renewed protests came around to require a supermajority of the historical commission, uh, and they have not approved one yet. Some people joke that the the Heritage Protection Act is really the Nathan Bedford Forest Protection Act. And and so this is no coincidence. I mean, them amping up this commission, making it super powerful, is a direct response to the attacks on these monuments. Yeah, that's right. And w- one of the the st- uh, for, he's he's now a, the the mayor of Murfreesboro, but. Uh, or the mayor of Rutherford County, rather, which is the county that Murfreesboro is in, uh, when he was a state senator, he co-sponsored this Heritage Protection Act and then served on the task force meant to evaluate whether MTSU should change the name of Forest Hall. We're talking today to author Connor Town, Connor Town O'Neill. He's the author of Down Along with That Devil's Bones. We do want to mention he's going to be speaking at a virtual event at the St. Louis County Library. That's this Thursday at 7 p.m. We have information about that on our website. You can also find that on the county library site. It's, it's just a really interesting book, and I learned so much both about the people fighting these monuments and about the history of Nathan Bedford Forest. One of the most jarring parts of this book, Connor, was, was learning for me this was news about how Forrest ended up with black workers even after slavery was outlawed, and they were toiling under conditions described by one writer you quoted as, quote, slavery under another name. This was on a place named President's Island. What did you learn about that in your research for this book? Yeah, and, and, and I should say that it, it was news to me, too, that a lot of the research that I did, um, you know, was a really a revelation and, and, and caused me to really reevaluate a lot of things, a lot of the stories that I was telling myself about about this country and, and, and what's happened in its history. Um, and, and, and like you, one of the most revealing things was looking into the history of convict leasing. Um, like you say, the historian uh, Douglas Blackman refers to as slavery by another name. So after, the emanci- after emancipation, after the Civil War, and after that brief moment of reconstruction where there's active effort to uh, you know, transform the country into a, a multiracial democracy, the passage of the 14th and 15th Amendments, uh, you know, vesting the formerly enslaved with uh, political power, voting rights, uh, equal protection under the law. That gets clawed back and undone by you know, vigilante groups like the Ku Klux Klan, by a lack of political will in the North to really see through the project of reconstruction. And uh, once that that project is foiled, there are all these different ways in which the South reverts back to its sort of pre-war state. And one of them, one of the most uh, important and, and with the most lasting consequences is this system of convict leasing where, you know, black Americans could be arrested for, you know, hardly anything, you know, um, really, really anything, trumped up charges, you know, vagrancy, just, you know, uh, these incredibly small or, or invented charges that would pull them into, uh, you know, prison labor camps, essentially. And that was a way of replacing the workforce that was emancipated during the war. Um, so so and, and it and it creates this assumption of black criminality and, a, you know, that sets the stage for mass incarceration, these issues that we're still grappling with today. Um, so there are these, you know, it's the strikes against force, the big ones, him being a slave trader um, and being the, Ku- the first grand wizard of the Ku Klux Klan, a really sort of um, 
overlooked one, but but just as important is that he was involved in convict leasing as well. Well, it's such a dispiriting history. And I think sometimes as Northerners, um, we can look at that history and we can just decide to wash our hands of it. But your book does not mm. allow people to do that. You grapple with this very early on. You grew up in Pennsylvania. And, and as you write, you kind of felt like one of the good guys. You've changed your tune about that. Tell me why. That's right. Yeah, I think it's really convenient for for folks in the North. And this was certainly the received wisdom that I grew up with that, you know, by dint of our affiliation with the Union Army, the great emancipators, that, you know, this we we were on the right side of history. And and there was we were sort of unimpeachable for that. Uh, And, and, you know, the Civil War issues, any unresolved issues in Civil War, that's down there, you know, in the South. And, And in the same way, insofar as race is still a problem in this country, it's really just a problem of people's hearts. And again, that's just sort of down there. Uh, but the more that I that I dug into uh, the, the legacy of the Civil War and, and, and looking at just how important, fundamental the system of slavery was to the entire country, the way that Northerners were benefiting from it, profiting from it, you know, all these instruments that, that built the modern economy that we, we think of as sort of Wall Street uh, financial tools are developed to extract as much wealth as possible from this slave system and are enriching bankers in New York, factories in, in Boston, and, um, and Providence. And, and so you, you come to see, once you kind of open the aperture up and, and, and get over these sort of idea, uh, naive and, you know, flattering, self, self-serving ideas about how the North is not implicated in any of this, you really start to see uh, just how cataclysmic this, this system of slavery was and just how, how sort of tarred everyone was with it. And so for people who are, are coming to terms with this and then people who are refusing to come to terms with this, you describe this as, as this is basically a Cold War version of the Civil War. And, and frankly, that felt so accurate in light of these fights that have been happening in this, this country. And it's so dispiriting in so many ways. W- what do you see that could serve as the proverbial toppling of the Ber- Berlin Wall here? Something that would let us move past this and, and get past this block where we're still hung up on this history, this this damaging history and people who feel the need to defend it. Yeah, I mean, I think getting over the idea that our history should flatter us can be really important. You know, I think, uh, again, the, the received wisdom of you know, America being the greatest country in the world and clinging tightly to these ideals of, of freedom and liberty, I think, encourage us to not grapple uh, with the, the darker elements of our history and, you know, overlook them uh, and instead just think about the history in a way that flatters us. But instead, if we can really square up to our history and look to the past, not as a way of, you know, um, filling our hearts with patriotism, but instead, you know, taking a clear look at at what's happened in the past as a way of understanding why we still have the inequities that we have in the present. Mm. If we can come to that common uh, orientation to the past and a common understanding of the past that sees just how much has been taken um, by building this country on the lie of white supremacy and, and, and black inferiority, and, and knowing that that was longstanding before the Confederacy and long outlived it uh, and has to do with so many policies, whether it's housing, whether it's access to health care, um, whether it's, you know, the treatment from police, uh, you know, all of these different ways that 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 in, inequities in this country break down um, by race. If, if we can look at the longstanding history of that and use it to orient us to, you know, the 
these inequalities that we have in the present, then I, you know, I think, I think we'd be in better shape. Just a, a different, using history in a different way, I think can, can be a real step in the right direction. And that's why it's encouraging to see this summer, this referendum on these monuments, Confederate monuments, but also with a deeper history of colonialism, like figures like Christopher Columbus, or even the founding fathers really coming under fire. I think that that signals a deeper referendum and a reckoning with what our history is and what it should teach us about the present. Connertown O'Neill, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you. It's really good to be here. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.